Happy New Year. Welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by our Chief Global Investment Strategist, Kevin Gardner, and our Co-Head of Portfolio Management, Hugo Cable-Cure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of macro market and portfolio activity, and also given it was the end of the year, we'll put 2022 uh, as a whole, hopefully, into some perspective. So, Kevin, we saw a better final quarter wrap up what was really a pretty dismal year for uh, investment markets. Can you just run us through the major developments? No, that's right, Helen. We saw some bounces in stocks, bonds and uh, currencies. Uh, For UK portfolios, though, the importance of those bounces was muted a little bit by the strength of the pound. That said, in UK markets, uh, one of the markets that did particularly well was the local bond market, the government gilt market. Which we're going to talk about a bit later in the context of the portfolios, yeah. This was only after. Exactly. It was only after an absolutely horrendous period when the market saw some historic losses associated with uh, the now thankfully almost forgotten initiatives um, on the fiscal front from the ill-fated trust government. And I do promise I'm not going to say anything else about the UK's political embarrassments in the rest of this podcast. Good. But overall, as you, as you suggested, um, it was still a pretty grim year. Uh, the year as a whole saw significant drops in most assets and in most regions. And that's in nominal terms. If you think about what inflation was doing, you probably have to add to add the best part of another 10% to arrive at the real post-inflation damage. And inflation really was the economic theme of the year and its consequences on interest rates and its potential consequences on growth. Those were the main talking points of 2022. Now, of course, stocks are volatile at the best of times. And with Russia's horrible attack on Ukraine, and central banks scrambling to close the stable doors, these were not the best of times to begin with. And most people, not just asset markets, most people in 2022 saw big declines in uh, real incomes and, uh, and wealth. But although we saw a lot of volatility in and around stock markets, arguably the most dramatic losses in context were those in the bond markets, because bonds are supposed to be safe haven assets. And to see those indices falling at double-digit yeah, paces, which we did mm. much of the year, was even extraordinary. Even you and I have been around a long time, I haven't seen that. Helen, you've not <laughs> been around for as long as I have, and even <laughs> I have not seen uh, bonds as volatile as they were. And it's probably worth pointing out that um, obviously inflation and interest rates had a lot to do that. Often people suggest that maybe index-linked bonds are somehow immune from losses in this sort of environment. Quite the opposite in 2022. Uh, index-linked bonds... Next-linked gills suffered alongside conventional bonds, which is a reminder, really, that these these instruments are not perfect inflation hedges. Mm. Nothing is a perfect inflation hedge. And in the wrong circumstances, they can be shockingly volatile, uh, too. Just to round up, I can pretend from our top-down perspective that we saw inflation being quite so high and we didn't expect people to worry as much as they did about growth. But we did always feel, have always felt, that inflation has been the potential big investment risk. And as far as bonds in particular are concerned, we've said for a long time that they're not offering risk-free returns. They've been offering instead return-free risk. And sadly, that's what we saw from that market in 22. Well, at least we have been saying it for a while. Indeed. So we've been comforted by that, and I'm sure Hugo will talk about it a bit more. But it was a very tough year. There were very few places in which to make money. Markets did improve a bit as Kevin mentioned, towards the end of the year. Can you just talk through how the portfolios fared in the fourth quarter and, and for the year? 
Yes, it was a very tough year. So as, as usual, these numbers are for the balanced portfolios and their new core fund equivalents. So for sterling portfolios, these were up around 4% uh, in the final quarter, which left them down around 10% for the year. Dollar portfolios were up around 7% for the quarter, which left them down around 12.5% for the year. And finally, the euro portfolios, these were up around 4% for the quarter, which left them also down around 12.5% for the year. So something of a recovery, but still disappointing returns overall. As is usually the case, the differences in performance between the different models continue to be driven mainly by currency movements. So 2022 was a strong year for the dollar, but the dollar did weaken a bit against the pound and the euro in the final quarter. You may be underestimating things a little bit, understating things, Hugo, a little bit. I mean, the pound had a big rally against the dollar off its lows, right? Yes, uh, fair enough. Um, the end of the previous quarter almost coincided with the low with the point low, for yeah. dollar sterling and that trust uh, nonsense. And the pound rallied 8% uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter and, and has actually rallied a bit further this year, year as well. So what are the main performance drivers being? How have the return assets and the diversifiers performed? And maybe you could just give us the headlines for the quarter and then where that's uh, left us for the year. Yes, so taking the sterling balance portfolios as the sort of example, as would be anticipated, the biggest contributor to performance remained the return assets. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the equities. Mm -hmm. These rallied nearly 13% over the quarter, leaving them down 20% for the year. And this helped claw back some of the relative underperformance against broader equity markets from 8%, which is where we were at the end of the third quarter, to less than 4% behind at the end of the year. And that trend has continued again as we move into 2023. Which also reinforces the point that we've made before on this podcast and hopefully to clients over the years is that you know, you can, we, we will often see these you know, quarter on quarter moves can actually be quite big and not, not to see it as being somewhat unexpected. Absolutely right. And these things can swing back. And that's mm -hmm. certainly what we're seeing at the moment. Um, and then on the other side of the portfolios, the diversifiers gave up around 2% performance, but they still finished the year up 5.5%, uh, which was a strong result in a very difficult year for bonds. So certainly having them in things other than bonds uh, was, was, very, was very helpful. And currency exposure contributed positively for the sterling portfolios around 2.5% and for the euro portfolios, but not for the dollar portfolios where it was just under 1%. A, a headwind there. Last stop. <laughs> okay, so drilling into a bit more detail on the stock side, Hugo, on the last podcast, you explained that the disappointing stock performance compared to the broader market index was a function both of what was owned and what wasn't. In terms of what was owned, it was the more highly rated growth stocks from memory, such as the Bears Fund, which performed very poorly. And in terms of what wasn't owned, it was energy, the more defensive stocks and the sort of you know, consumer staples, utilities, those types of things which held up, which held up well. Is that that's absolutely right? Yes. Yes. But it has been has been shifting since. Yeah. So, I mean, really, since since that point, the pictures changed and there have been some stand up performances, but they've had um, quite an industrial and old economy theme. Mm -hmm. So in the fourth quarter, Deer, the tractor maker, was up 28 percent. So farming comes have benefited from high crop prices. The industrial gases company, Linda, uh, was up 21%. Microsoft, which isn't exactly 
an industrial. I'm going to wait to see how you get this to being an industrial Hugo. But it has a cloud business, Azure, which is very much at the picks and shovels end, end of tech. That was up 22%. I think I got, got away with that. I think you did. Um, Berkshire Hathaway, which is a conglomerate, um, that's now ahead of the S&P 500 index over the last decade. Is it? Uh, surprisingly, and up nearly 16% for the quarter. Uh, that's great to see. The Lansdowne a Developed uh, Markets Fund, which is heavily exposed to the UK market in areas such as uh, materials, had a good, a good rally, up 21%. So we added to this fund uh, at the end of the third quarter, uh, following an update with a manager that highlighted the extreme value represented by the underlying holdings. And they were talking about a median PE ratio of five wow. times earnings on their, on their stocks. And finally, and about time, really, some better performance from the Chinese fund Vanda, which was up 12% and boosted by hope for the economy opening up as the zero COVID policy ends. And then relative, relative to broader markets, the big story in the final quarter was the sell-off in the mega cap tech stocks. So Amazon was down more than 25%. However, the most notable was Tesla, which shed $440 billion in value over that three-month period. And we, and we checked the numbers. This is more than the total value of Toyota, Volkswagen, and General Motors today. And that's all in one quarter. So fortunately, portfolio and exposure in this area is small relative to the broader market. And certainly in the case of Tesla, it's um, de minimis. So there have been some big moves in share prices in the last three months. You mentioned that uh, we added to the Lansdowne Fund at what so far, anyway, appears to have been a good level. What other transactions have there been in the portfolios? Yes, yeah, so we added to the uh, Lansdowne in the beginning of the, the fourth quarter. This was funded by reductions in both Deer and Linda, which have been very strong performers and where we wanted to reduce the position sizing. Aside from that, the changes have all been on the diversifying side of the portfolio. So we reduced the three trend-following funds, the Abbey Focus and the two CFM funds, after an exceptional period of performance. Again, we felt the positions have become too big. We also took some cash out of the Acura fund. The manager, 36 South, had been monetizing option positions, so taking the profits on some positions which have become very valuable, particularly some dollar-yen positions. And in turn, we took this cash out of the fund. And the final change was buying some longer dated uh, bonds. Um, th this is the first time that I can remember. Certainly the first time I can remember. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's the first time I can remember us buying these bonds, certainly since I've been at Rothschild & Co., which is nearly 14 years. Congratulations. But we were presented an opportunity handed to us by Truss and Quarteng and the forced selling that they inflicted on pension funds. So... There was a period of mayhem, uh, the pension funds, insurance companies, they had to sell these bonds because they needed to, to, to raise cash to cover losses. And when you get a forced seller, it can present an opportunity. So conventional bonds were a, a bloodbath for investors mm -hmm. last year, but we actually made some money from them. Yeah, great. As you say, it's, it, it's something that we haven't done, certainly since I joined, and that's nearly 13 years. So. Same, same here. Um, although I think I'm right in saying that didn't last year's moves in bond markets wipe out the performance from the previous decade? I think that's right, if yeah. not slightly more. Slightly it's more, a really yeah. sensational sell. Yeah. Kevin, you talked about the backdrop for last year's performance, crystal ball time. 
Um, okay. What's your appraisal of the uh, of the investment environment that we find ourselves in today? Well, famous last words, but I think we're trying to be a bit more constructive about 2023. I mean, seriously, um, stock markets were not that expensive a year ago. And now having sold off and the outlook for corporate profitability not being that, uh, that altered on a long-term view, they look pretty good long-term value once again to us. Mm -hmm. Bonds are still there, apart from those, Hugo, that you were able to pick up at bargain basement levels in the gilt market. But even though they're, they're a bit dear, but they're a lot closer to their fair value than they have mm -hmm. been, as you were saying, Helen, for, for a long, long time. So valuations look to be reasonably okay. And in terms of the, the big news, of course, inflation was the big story last year. Central banks did wake up. And they've now pushed policy rates up pretty sharply. Uh, and they've also started to unwind their quantitative easing. So they're selling some of the bonds that they've been owning. They haven't finished yet, but the money markets are now pricing in what we used to think of as normal levels of interest rates. And normal for us here in the UK might be between 4 and 5%. Mm -hmm. In, this, in uh, the States, it might be similarly about 4 to 5%. In the Eurozone, maybe a little bit less, about 3 to 4%. But we've seen a very dramatic normalization of interest rates. One of the issues for this year is going to be how quickly they absolutely peak and whether they begin to fall back as briskly mm. as the money markets want them to. A second tactical issue for us has to be also whether have corporate earnings expectations bottomed out yet. The economy mm. globally has been remarkably resilient. Even the UK has been much more resilient than people had feared. But we're still seeing downgrades to corporate profitability on a short-term tactical perspective. And the issue is whether we've seen, seen all of that for the time being. Our feeling is there doesn't have to be a horrible, dramatic downturn, but we probably haven't seen all of the bad news completely filtered through uh, just yet. The jury is still out on exactly how big a downturn they'll, they'll be. Turning more positively, looking outside the markets, looking at the real economy, uh, for a change. The biggest single hit to growth, particularly in Europe, that really had most people worried last year was the terms of trade shock, that, as we call it, the impact on real living standards of a sharp rise in energy costs coming out of, out of uh, our energy supplies in the East. That huge spike in costs is reversing. We're seeing natural gas prices slumping. They're down now by roughly two thirds from their high points in August. And of course, governments have been coming to support consumers Anyway, so the biggest single hit to growth is fading. We haven't seen all of the damage done yet by interest rates surface in the economy. But again, as often happens, understandable reasons for concern, but in the media and in the public debate, we often overstate those concerns. And in the media recently, the focus has been very much on the portion of households which are really severely affected in the UK by rising interest rates. But that portion's a minority. It accounts for roughly 10% of all households in the UK. Most households in the UK are not facing what we call mortgage misery. So there are grounds for cautious optimism to suggest that maybe we're going to see growth stabilise. Inflation is beginning to come down. Those lower gas prices will ensure that it continues to do so. So for me, the risks going into 2023, well, there are tactical residual risks there still on the economic front, but the macro risks for me are not the really significant imponderables as we enter this year. We've been around the interest rate and the inflation and the recession course many times in the past, maybe not recently, but we sort of know what the issues are there. The big imponderable for me is, is the geopolitical situation. I'm thinking here, not even uh, it's just the awful ongoing attrition in Ukraine, but the face-off between China and the United States over Taiwan. And for me, this dwarfs 
all the other risks that we face. That said, because that sounds pretty, pretty uh, unsettling, that said, I think China is very different to Russia. In, in particular, I think it will continue to act in its own best long-term interests. And as a result, I think it will remain patient over that claim. It will never negotiate on it, which is something I think that the United States often forgets, but it may remain patient and not act on it. Mm. And so we may yet be able to muddle through geopolitically in 2023 uh, also. One final point, which I can't resist mentioning, lots of uncertainties last year, but one of the things that should have been tidied up and put to bed is this idea that slowly the Western economies and Western capital markets are becoming more like Japan, which is zero growth, no inflation, no profitability. Our argument all along has been, no, that's the wrong way to see things. And I think that point was confirmed last year as Western inflation percolated through to Japan mm -hmm. and we found Japan becoming more like us rather than vice versa. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. That almost sounds cheerful. Almost. <laughs> um, but it's a good reminder that we shouldn't take newspaper headlines at face value, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and actually logic check the real data that, that comes through. Hugo, I asked you three months ago what was getting you excited. And honestly, I think it was pretty much everything that you owned. So it was equities, it was diversifiers. We talked about conventional bonds uh, for the first time in a decade. Given what Kevin said, you know, are you still as optimistic as you sounded? <laughs> Um, I use the word hesitantly, but... No, no, I am. I mean, I'm not downplaying the macro and political risks, but my, my optimism comes from changes to the investing environment itself. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that when it comes to stocks, the markets have been a sort of one-way bet for such a long period of time, really dating back to the recovery from the global financial crisis at the end of the noughties and the era of easy money that it uh, ushered in. And, and that horse to back was growth equities, particularly in the US, where valuation can, you know, valuation became old fashioned and mm. passive investment into the NASDAQ was all that was really needed. What has changed is that that easy money, particularly post the COVID response, you know, eventually resulted in inflation, which in turn has prompted the central banks to turn off the monetary taps. And because of this, the process of sorting the sort of wheat from the chaff has uh, started. So some stocks have been marked down enormously. And so for us, some businesses, which we thought were too expensive, are finally coming back onto the radar screen. So that's the first thing that's mm -hmm. encouraging us. So it feels like a better opportunity set yeah. uh, than at the beginning of last year. The other thing relates to the diversifiers. So for the first time in years, cash and bonds have some yield, as Kevin's mm -hmm. been, been talking yeah. about. So that, that's, that's one big uh, change. And the other thing is that the implicit and even explicit um, support that markets had from the central banks, the so-called Fed put, seems to have been taken away uh, for the time being anyway. So along with the shifting interest rate expectations, this has resulted in more movement across all of the asset classes. So equities and bonds and commodities, currencies, this is a more productive environment for, for some of the investments in the portfolios, like the trend followers. So it's not a surprise that they had a better year. And volatility managers like Okura and the bond traders like Asaba and, and so on. So there's a, there's a good opportunity set on, on the mm. diversifier side as well. So, I mean, that, that's why I'm excited. I mean, we're seeing plenty of things. Good. When it comes to sort of monitoring the existing investments that we've got and also finding new ideas, you know, I know that the team's very much back out on the road, looking at 
actual things rather than uh, headlines, certainly. What impact is that having? Well, there's really been a reminder that away from the computer screens and out in the real world as such, a lot of these companies have used the turbulence of the last couple of years to strengthen their businesses. So one, one example is the consumer businesses owned in the two Albizia funds. So two of my co-portfolio managers, Rupin and Michelle, were recently out in Indonesia with the Albizia team, uh, visiting a number of portfolio companies and some prospective holdings as well. And it, it's easy to forget that a country like Indonesia has a population of 300 million people, growing middle class and strong underlying demand for quality branded products. And the, and the feedback that we got from that trip is that these consumer facing businesses are performing extremely well. However, the share prices of many of these companies have gone nowhere for many years and now look extremely cheap. So, so there's a sort of disconnect there. Another, another example is the testing business Eurofin. So I recently visited one of their new labs at Heathrow and our head of research, Ramesh, went to another one in Wisconsin. Both of these are state-of-the-art um, facilities built to replace clusters of old labs, you know, with high degrees of robotics and automation. And so some really heavy investment in these new labs lays the foundation for, for many years of growth to, to come. And the rest of the team have been busy too, so cloud developer forums and cable tech conference and so on. And it's really good to be back on the road, and this definitely helps with new ideas. And the other thing that it reminds us is that how share prices can become detached from what's actually happening to businesses. So in, you know, in the short term, shares can be moved by a lot of different things, such as the positioning of other investors and money flows. But over longer time horizons, the operating performance is really what's, what's most important. So getting out into the field and speaking to people who are closer to these industries can really help with gaining a better perspective. Well, thank you both. And to all of you for listening to our podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. We always try and touch on the topics which we think you might be interested in or concerned about. Do please keep sending any questions you have to your client advisors. And if there's anything that comes up as a result of the podcast, please reach out to them. Uh, Our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you wish to receive them as soon as they are released or listen to some of our other podcasts, please subscribe on our channel on either of those platforms. Thank you again for listening and I hope you have a very happy and healthy 2023. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.